you've not started? I don't have anything to say. I, I, <laughs> stop. Kim has nothing to say. Hi. Go ahead. Welcome to An Hour of Your Life. My name's Kim. And my name is Steve. I don't, I don't really have. So now that I work from home, I really. She's boring. I am so boring. I do not leave the house, at, like period, ever. I sit at home and do work and watch TikTok and play with my snake and listen to Rupert snore. That's pretty much my entire life. Well, before we get into that, I would <laughs> like to say a special thanks to our friend Marion from Germany who sent us a huge box of Leibkuchen. Listen. Thank you, Marion. I was not, I, I wouldn't say that I was heavy, but I was over, overweight, about 13, about 13 pounds overweight. And I'm pretty proud of myself over the last probably month. I've lost uh, about 15 pounds. Um, and then we got the shipment from Germany. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you because I know she listens to us in Germany. And I just want to say thank you. And there was so oh. much. And we we have shared that with friends and family. With Yeah, with family. Yeah. We've, yep. And yeah. We we took some to trivia the other night to to share and it, it was yeah ugh, so there, good. there's so much if you are if you uh prob probably American well I guess uh, out, probably outside of Germany maybe France do they have no these are made in Nuremberg Germany. all German yeah if you've never had Stollen or Leibkuchen um go on the internet and find yourself some and have it shipped to you. It's not going to be as good as what we got probably because ours came basically direct from the bakery, I think, but it did. It was very, very fresh. It was still soft. It was amazing. Um, but if you've never had stolen is a traditional Christmas thing in Germany. It's kind of it's like a fruitcake. I call it a German fruitcake. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like really a German good. fruitcake with powdered sugar on top. It's really good. Um, and then I like the Leibkuchen. Leibkuchen is like With the glaze. It's Leibkuchen is like gingerbread, but it's uh, it's kind of a fruity element to it. It sits on like a wafer, like a very very thin um, kind of crispy paper like wafer, Chewy. which sounds not good, but it is really it well, gives it a little bit of a together. crunch. Yeah. yeah, and then it's covered. Usually, a lot of times it'll be dipped in chocolate or covered with a glaze, and it's. Oh, oh, they so taste so good. good. Anyway, you're making me hungry. I I was hungry. That's part of the thing too. Is that I part of uh, how I've been losing weight is intermittent fasting. I don't eat after seven o'clock at night, and it is now as we speak. It is nine thirty four, and uh, my tummy's kind of rumbling a little bit. But it's all right. I'm gonna go to bed. Not too long, probably after we finish the show, and then I won't have to worry about it till the morning. So it's fine. So what is our episode about tonight? Sticking with kind of Americana type thing. Yeah. I uh, I don't know why we picked this episode for this week. And I'm really kind of surprised that we haven't covered this before. Because this is kind of right up our alley. Um, we mentioned last week that we started to cover this episode. We started to do research on this episode back a while ago. And we got distracted by the, was it the molasses flood? Yeah. 
Well, the molasses flood is smaller and not as well known. Right. This, this so, but we got distracted. So yeah. we put this one on the back burner, no pun intended. And now we are returning to the great Chicago fire. You've all heard of that, right? The story about a cow kicking over a lantern and engulfing almost an entire city. So this week, we're going to talk about the humble beginnings of Chicago and the history of firefighting in Chicago. And we're also going to talk about the conditions that set up the perfect storm for the Great Chicago Fire. So if you haven't heard about the Great Chicago Fire, you're about to. And I can't imagine anybody. You know, it's one of those things that we know about and you've heard about it. But I don't think Listen, a, there's a lot of detail. And we're going to add some detail here tonight. We have an international audience. And I do not want to presume that our friends in Ireland or uh, I don't Madagascar or <laughs> wherever they're listening from, I do not want to presume that they know about um, some of our national history. Well, the Great so. Chicago Fire was one of many that happened in the late summer, early fall of 1871. But uh, to get to the great, uh, what do they call it? The They call it the conflag... Conflagration. The, the great con- conflagration. <laughs> let's talk, before we get to that, let's talk about the early days of Chicago and especially the Chicago Fire Department. So, Kim, what is conflagration? That's one of those 1871 words that I have never heard until... I started reading about this. Conflagration. Now, an extensive fire which destroys a great deal of land or property. Well, that pretty much explains it. Yeah. But I do have to clarify. I read a book about this probably about nine, ten years ago. And then... And we were looking for it, and it's kind of hard to find. You can buy it. Um, you can buy... It's called, is it called the Great Conflict? It's called the Great Chicago Fire. The Great Chicago Fire. I think it's published by the Chicago Tribune. You can find it on Amazon. It is not on Prime or on Kindle, I mean. Um, You can only order it in book form. So if you would like to read it, that's where you can find it. And that has a lot of detail. But typically how we do things, we went out, we went to a lot of different sources to try to bring this story together. I got a lot of my information from... um, the greatchicagofire.org. So yeah. there's actually an entire website, um, a museum and everything devoted to the Chicago Fire. So if you want to, there's also some really, really cool art um, on that was inspired by the fire on that website. So well, again, there's actual picture, photographs too. Yeah, yeah. So greatchicagofire.org. If after the show you want to see more, that's a really great yeah. resource. So yeah, if you don't always stick around, if you go, if you listen to after the music, mm-hmm. we always... We always cite our sources. We always cite our sources. And we so, are professionals. Yeah, so you can, yeah. <laughs> okay. So anyway, so let's get on with our story tonight and start with a little history about the about early Chicago, the fire department, and let's watch how this story developed. Now, in its beginning days, Chicago was nothing more than a little frontier village with roughly six frame buildings and a population estimated at 150. Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. 150. 150 people. The first building erected in 1831. You want to take a guess to what it was? I mean, I know you know, but what would you think that it would be? Probably like a hospital or something? Like important, a post office, something? if, If it was on the East Coast, they would probably call it a public house. It was a, a beer or a beer, a bar, a tavern yep. was the first building in Chicago in 1831. 
Mark Boba, I'm guessing it's Bobine, Bobian, was the proprietor, and he named his establishment the Saganash Tavern. Most dwellers lived along the south bank of the Chicago River on South Water Street. And as we get more into this, we're going to kind of be talking a little bit about um, north side, south side, east side, west side. It might. It all ends at the lake. It all. Yeah. But there <laughs> there the were side. prairies to one side and a lake to the other. And so um, just know that it it might be helpful to look at a map and of Chicago. That lake being Lake Michigan. Yes. Okay. Um, the city boundaries were Ohio Street on the north, Jefferson on the west, Jackson on the south, and on the east was State Street south of the river, and then Lake Michigan was north of the river. The Saganash Tavern remained a social center of Chicago until March of 1851, at which time, go figure, a fire caused its closure. The first fire company was formed in 1832, so a year after the tavern was built, and it was called the Washington Volunteers. The first Chicago ordinance was passed in November of 1833, which prohibited the passing of any stovepipe through the roof, partition, or siding of any building unless guarded by tin or iron six inches from the wood. So even in the very early days, Chicago was very, uh, there's a lot of like fire I think stuff, that's typical kind of, of like, all big cities. I mean, they're their first... Um, their first fire company was formed a year after their first building and their first ordinance was passed to not, you know, to curb fire yeah. dangers. I, I don't think that was unusual, though. You're I think, I think, yeah, I think most of the big cities when of, they started. Oh, it's yeah. Foreta- foreshadowing and foretelling of what is to come. Fair enough. Okay. Now, the penalty charge for infringement of uh, this first ordinance was $5, which is not much now, but back in... 1833 that was probably a whole bunch of money coincidentally if the violation wasn't corrected within 48 hours the penalty was repeated and i bet they had someone who would go around and check to make sure that it was their little ruler yeah make sure it's six inches whoever yeah anyway as a result of this ordinance the first fire warden named benjamin jones was appointed i bet old benjamin had a ruler, and he was going around checking on all this stuff. <laughs> Everybody loved yeah. him. Yep. Yeah. In September 1834, Chicago was divided into four wards, and there was a fire warden for each ward. Oh, so it wasn't just old Benji Jones that was well, getting all the hate. Well, yeah. I guess it grew. Chicago's <laughs> a growing town here. It's, it's a thriving metropolis now. Okay. The fire warden was paid to take monthly inspections to verify compliance particularly of the stovepipe ordinance. So they were looking for this. Yeah. So during 18, October 1834, an individual carrying a shovel of hot coal embers from one building to the next at Lake and LaSalle Street accidentally ish- initiated a fire. I'm having trouble with my words tonight. You haven't even been drinking. Nope. The following day, an article was printed in the Chicago Democrat newspaper criticizing the city for its lack of competent authority at the fire. Consequently, another ordinance was immediately enacted indicating the warden presiding in the district of the fire currents acts as the chief in command. The remaining ward wardens would be his assistants. So additionally, a warden had the jurisdiction to insist bystanders participate in the extinguishment of a fire 
And if met with opposition, a fine of $5 was imposed. So if you don't help it, help put it out and you're standing there, you got to pay five bucks. Well, Chicago's always had some complicated politics. In November 1835, yet another ordinance was created. However, this one was twofold. A store owner or dwelling occupant was ordered to provide one leather fire water bucket for each fireplace or stove in the building and hung in a conspicuous place. Boy, I'd like to see that try to go over these days. So it's very similar to a mandate. The fire extinguishers that yeah. businesses are mandated to have and have inspected annually. Oh, mandate. What a bad word these days. So if there was more than one fireplace or stove, then that many fire water buckets were expected. Furthermore, the second part to this ordinance was a directive commanding owners and dwellers to go promptly to the scene of a fire commanding with their very own personal fire water bucket which was identified by the painting of their initials thereon. So it really is very, very similar to today's fire extinguishers. If you have a business, yeah, it really is. you're expected to have a fire extinguisher that covers every so, so many square feet, and it has to have an inspection tag on it that is updated annually. Yep. Of course, a fine was levied for negligence of the bucket of ordinance course. and or unwillingness to participate at the fire scene. And as a direct result of the Firewater Bucket Ordinance, the first Fire Bucket Brigade was formed in November of 1835 called the Fire Guards Bucket Company. How about that? So original. <laughs> so anyway, the Pioneer Hook and Ladder Company, number one, was organized a month earlier on October 7th. But earlier than that, in September, the Board of Trustees convinced the town president not the mayor, they had a president then, Whoa. to place an order for two hand-pump fire engines and 1,000 feet of hose. A month later, additional fire equipment was ordered, being two ladders 16 feet long, two fire hooks with chain and rope, four axes, and four handsaws. The town census of 1835 showed a population of 3,265. So in Chicago, 1835... Brown. Only like 32, maybe 3,300, well, 3,265 yeah. people, exactly. But it had still grown from that, what was it, 174 well, it's, or it's something? Grown, it's grown quite a bit, yeah. It seems like a lot of ordinances for that few people, but anyway. People aren't smart. Yeah. The rapid building of Chicago was done almost entirely of combustible, combustible <laughs> material. Oh, boy. The town trustees were stirred to improve the fire department. Hiram Hunganen, the president of the Board of Trustees, became the chief engineer of the fire department in December 1835. The first site for the engine company number one, called the Fire King, was LaSalle Street, where City Hall stands now in Chicago. Now, this is important. The dimension of the house was 24 by 12 feet in size, with much inducing by members to place, this is a quote here, with much inducing by members to place a cistern in the building to hold two hogsheads of water, which is about 63 gallons per hogshead. And it was to, and I'll read it just exactly like it says, and to be made of good pine lumber, the board of trustees agreed. So the firehouse was made of a pine lumber and it had two basically big cisterns four cisterns oh four cisterns okay um of 63 gallons each oh yeah you're right two yeah, hogs two. Heads. That's, that's what i thought two, two, hogs two cisterns with 63 gallons each yeah. and that's enough for the whole city 
Well, for that district, I guess. Mm, Anyway. On March 4th, 1837, Chicago was incorporated as a city. Congratulations. According to a special census, 4,170 was the population at that time. So a new second fire engine was purchased in the fall of 1837 with the formation of the Tradesman's Fire Company in December. The first fire of any significance occurred October 27th, 1839 on Lake Street near Dearborn. The fire destroyed the Tremont House and 17 other structures as well, with damages amounting to $65,000. In September of 1841, the Chicago Bag and Fire Guard Company, better known as the 40 Thieves, was (laughs) formed. This company fought fires with canvas bags, cords, and wrenches protecting life and property for five years. That's pretty tough. Yeah. The Citizens Fire Brigade of Chicago was patterned after the 40 Thieves Company following the disastrous fire of October 19, 1857, in which 23 people perished and the property damage was approximately $500,000. During the next decade, the Chicago Fire Department added to its volunteer companies a total of two bucket companies, three engine companies, and two hose companies. Now, all this is actually kind of important to build this up here. Yeah. These companies held names such as the Rough and Ready Bucket Company Number 1, Red Jackets Engine Company Number 4, Neptune, and Hope Hose Company Number 2, which was the last of the volunteer companies. I wonder if they each had a softball team. They, like, Probably. played together. Stickball. The Hope Hose Company Number 2 was formed in March of 1848. Now, remember, this is the last of the volunteer companies. It was notorious because of its one-minute and seven-second run of 500 yards with 300 feet of hose and its connection to the water source. Hope Company had a remarkable career of service until it was disbanded in 1859. Engine Company Number 7, Lawrence, was organized in September 1850, but reorganized as the Eagle in 1852. Lone Star Hose Company Number 3 was established in September 1851 and afterwards became the Illinois of October of 19, or 1853. The Phoenix Engine Company Number 8 was brought to life in December 1851 only to be changed to Cataract in October 1853. Hmm. The members of the Phoenix were mostly sailors and could not be depended upon during navigation season, So the next increase to the fire force wasn't until February 1854 when New England, later known as the America Company Number 9, was created. I wonder if Phoenix hung with the Navy Pier. A good chance, probably. (laughs) I don't don't think it was built in. But anyway. Um, But this is all... It seems like we're throwing a lot of names and dates and everything at you. But but the point is is how... What a disorganized organization it is. Yes, exactly. Um, Hodgepodge might be the right word. They're volunteers that are thrown together and then disbanded a couple years later. If that, they are constantly being, their names are constantly being changed. I'm guessing maybe their locations are kind of all over the place. Dennis J. Sweeney was the first paid chief engineer of the Chicago Fire Department. Now, I think the excerpt that Steve is about to read is really important as it describes, just like I said, how the fire department operated back in the day. Um, Things are a little bit different these days, but clearly in the old days, they had something of a system and did what they had to do. So here is the excerpt from Dennis J. Sweeney's manuscripts as written by Silas McBride. And so I'm going to use some old language here. Mm. Okay, so in 1845... 
not just language, just the way they put their words in really, the sense yeah, together. It's, yeah. not, it's not old. So here it goes. In 1845, when I first joined, the department had no waterworks and we had to depend on the river for suction. We had a sewer running down Madison Street to state and downstate to the river. The sewer connected with LaSalle, Clark, and Dearborn. That was our principal reliance for water, except for river. When it was too far away, number five, the company I helped to organize lay on Randolph Street on the west side of the bridge. It was a two-story frame house with a meeting room upstairs. In the evenings, we had to gather around there like at all engine houses waiting for a fire. You just kind of hang out and wait for a fire. Yeah. He continues, In February of 1855, a deep-toned bell was installed at the new courthouse. The July of 1855 ordinance passed, dividing the city into six fire districts. An alarm sounding code was initiated. Eight strokes of the fire bell signaled the alarm. The additional strokes indicated the district. A watchman was continually on duty in the tower. Other than to ring the bell, the watchman was responsible to hand out flags by day and lanterns by night used to direct firefighters to the scene of the fire. In those days, there was no gas, so to light the way torch, boys ran ahead of the engine. When an alarm was rung at night, citizens were responsible to place lighted candles in their windows, lighting the way for the firefighters. Okay, so that's... I. I'm glad we put this excerpt in there because, you know, they got torch boys running ahead to... I've never heard of a torch boy. Yeah, well, that's what they did. They ran ahead of the engine so they could see their way as they're driving to the fire. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just, this is, I, I think it's really interesting how they fought fires and how they had to protect the city back in the day. And that bell that he references is, uh, you were going to hear that again. Literally? Ding dong? Okay. Oh, in a manner of speaking, yes. The Long John steam fire engine tested in February 1858 was met with hostility from volunteer firemen. The volunteers could sense this was the beginning of their extinction. Uh-oh. The steam engine Long John was put into service on May 1st, 1858 at the corner of Adams and Franklin Street. Fire. That's close to where I'm going to be staying this week on Adams Street. Oh. Yeah, I have to go back to Chicago this week. You should go visit the museum. Yeah. Firefighters, I don't think I'll have time. Firefighters of the volunteer hose companies and two paid members, the engineer and assistant engineer, manned Long John. The death bell of the volunteer fire department was rung on August 2nd, 1858, when city council passed the ordinance organizing the paid city of Chicago fire department. So now they have a full-time professional fire firefighters. I, I wonder how many of the volunteers became like fully paid firefighters. I don't know. Don't know. I, yeah. I couldn't find anything about yeah, that. Yeah, I would think probably a pretty good amount of them because they already knew how to do the job. Well, they're volunteers. They probably had their own job that it they were It depends on how yeah. much the city was willing to pay yeah. them, I guess. The first completely paid company was Engine Company Number 3 located at 225 South Michigan Street. This company was one of the 15 engines and three hook and ladder companies acquired from the volunteer fire department. Hmm. All right, so the entire inventory for Chicago's fire department in the year 1866, now this is just a few years before the Great Conflagration, hmm. 11 steamers, two hand engines, 13 hose carts, one hook and ladder truck, 
120 paid members, 125 volunteers, and 53 horses. The sanitary department reported in 1870 that the total number of buildings within the city limits was 48,867 of brick construction, 44,274 of wood, and 914 of stone or iron. So it's grown quite a bit here. So you have fewer than 300 firefighters to cover uh, 44,274 wood buildings. Plus, that's just the wood. Plus the, you know, the brick and the stone and iron. It was reported the fire department averaged about two fires a day. The same year, the knock patent hose elevator was introduced into the fire department as the first water tower of its kind. This apparatus came equipped with an elevating platform on which a firefighter was positioned to aim a hose stream. The hose line elevated with a platform as it was raised. In 1871, the hose elevator number one designed by Skinner was put into service. Skinner also made a similar model for St. Louis Fire Department. That should bring you up to speed on the early Chicago Fire Department and their ability to fight fires. Now we need to set the conditions that led up to the Great Chicago Fire. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really glad we included that because I think that was important to get, yeah, to get the feel of where we're at right yeah. here. So to move on with the story. While there were plenty of rainy periods during the first half of 1871, rainfall quickly became more scarce in the latter half of summer and into the first half of autumn for both Chicago and the other areas across the Midwest. For Chicago specifically, the relative lack of rainfall from July through early October caused annual precipitation totals to trend from slightly above average to well below average. Here are a couple statistics to put the dryness seen in the months leading up to the Great Chicago Fire into perspective. Now, right now, we wouldn't think like in the big city that drought and stuff would have much of an effect. But remember how many wooden structures. The entire city was made of wood. Yeah. yeah. And we'll get into that a little bit more. So in the three-month period leading up to the fire, only 3.55 inches of precipitation were recorded. This was almost eight inches below the average amount of precipitation that is typically seen during this same three-month period as right now of of 2021. This was the the second driest stretch for that time period ever recorded, well, on, on record. The month of September on its own was exceptionally dry. As of 2021, it was the eighth driest September on record for Chicago with only 0.74 inches, inches of precipitation recorded during the entire month. Only three days of the month of September saw any measurable precipitation. And as of 2021, there were only four Septembers that had fewer dates with measurable, had fewer dates with measurable precipitation. So it was dry. It, it was dry. It was yeah. really dry. And like Pretty bad. right now, the, if you were in downtown Chicago and it was that dry, you wouldn't really. Think. You would. You wouldn't even care about it. Right. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. Yeah. It, it, it's just a non-issue. Up, yeah, right. non-issue. But that was not the case in 1871. That was not the case. The lack of rainfall helped and intensified drought conditions across much of the Midwest by the end of September. Vegetation dried out and turned much of the region into a tinderbox, where wildfires could ignite and spread very, very easily. 
The first week of October, unfortunately, saw these dry and windy conditions take place. Up oh, Chicago, the windy city. Mm-hmm. From September 29th through October 28th, Chicago saw zero precipitation. None. Zip. And nothing. I do want to point out, too, that this is not, this wasn't just Chicago. This was across the entire Midwest. Midwest. It was a real, there were fires everywhere. So this the Great Fire was not necessarily a a huge surprise um, because there had been fire and there there had been fires all over Chicago leading up to this even. Um, but it it just and we'll we'll get into how the fire department handled it. But temperatures during this time frame were generally above normal, with most high temperatures reaching the seventies or eighties, and that's Fahrenheit. I don't know how to do the calculations to Celsius, but. Dew points generally range between 30 and 50 degrees. Winds during this time frame were generally pretty breezy, gusting about 15 or 25 miles an hour on most days. Similar weather conditions, like we said, were seen across much of the Midwest where fires started breaking out in rapid succession and the Windy City structure didn't help. A majority of Chicago's buildings were made of wood and it wasn't unusual to find huge piles of lumber scattered throughout. Even the raised sidewalks were made of wood. And on the morning of Sunday, October 5th, Chicago's 185 firefighters were exhausted because within the last week, they had fought no fewer than 20 fires. So now we have the history and the conditions that led up to the perfect storm as of the Great Chicago Fire. Yeah, we have dry conditions, really hot, wood everywhere, Exhausted firefighters. Yeah, it's the perfect storm here. Now, the fire did indeed start behind the O'Leary's house. Kate and Patrick O'Leary lived with their five children and five cows at the rear of 183 DeCoven Street. Side note, that address now belongs to a training facility for the Chicago Fire Department. They rented the front of the house to another family, the McLaughlin's. The O'Leary family had just stored up a ton of coal, wood shavings, and wool to get through the winter in the barn, which was adjacent to the house, which sat on an alley. Now, about 8.30 that night, a fire started in the shed next to the barn. The origins of the fire are still a mystery, but you've probably heard the story of Kate's cow kicking over a lantern. Now... We got to say, the city council officially exonerated Mrs. O'Leary and her cow in 1997. Took them a while. But it was said that right after the fire, the enterprising Mrs. O'Leary let people in to go see the barn and tour the origins of the Great Fire. So that's that's the legend anyway. As the saying goes, and there's that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, the fire was popularized in a version of the song, A Hot Time in the Old Town. I'm sure you've heard that one. There's going to be a hot time in the old town tonight. Other speculations were that there were some boys gambling and smoking in the barn or that a party goer <laughs> from a get-together the McLaughlins were having went Could out have to those get- boys smoking and gambling in the barn having their own party out uh, there. Yeah, right. Um, the McLaughlins were having a party that evening. And so somebody, you know, one of the theories was that somebody went out to get some milk. Must have been a heck of a party. And Ooh, we're running low. <laughs> go, go get, get some, some milk. more milk. Yeah. <laughs> nope, Mrs. O'Leary's cow, you wild people, you. <laughs> and, you know, maybe they had a cigarette or whatever when they went out to get the milk and they accidentally set the, the fire. 
Um, at any rate, the O'Learys were said to be in bed at the time that the fire started, and their house was actually spared. Now, once the fire had started, watchman Matthias Schaefer spotted it from the courthouse tower. Remember, we talked about the, the tower platform being built so they could kind of keep an eye out over the city. But he mistakenly sent the fire department to Canalport and Halstead, which was about a mile or so away. Oops. Now, Schaefer immediately realized his mistake, but the telegraph operator wouldn't change anything because he was afraid of causing confusion. So maybe he just figured the firefighters would figure it out when they got close. Yeah, they'll, they'll see the fire. Right. So okay. maybe that's what the telegraph operator was thinking. Now, a storekeeper near the O'Leary home tried to alert using one of the city's new alarm boxes, but for whatever reason, the signal failed to make it to the courthouse. So they got some new technology they're working with here, mm-hmm. trying to automate. You know, and eventually this became radio dispatch right. and things like that. But it didn't work correctly So right now they had point. Yeah, right now they had telegraph. Mm-hmm. From the official report, the first information received by the fire department came from an alarm struck in the fire alarm office at 930. Okay, wait. We are going to talk about times a lot um, because it happened. They're kind of important. So the fire started at 830. The fire alarm um, rang in at 930. So a full hour after the origins of the fire started. And again, this is from the official report. Right. I think I got this from the city of Chicago. The alarm sounded box number 342 at the corner of Canalport Avenue and Halstead Street, a point in the direction of the fire, but a mile beyond it. There was no signal given by any box to the central office, but the box was given by Matthias Schaefer from the courthouse cupola he being the night watchman on duty at the time and having sighted the fire. There was no signal given from anybody until after the fire department had arrived and turned in the second and third alarms. If any person set the fire either by accident or design, he was careful not to give the alarm. The nearest engine house was six blocks away from the fire. The next nearest one was nine blocks away. The nearest hose house was located 11 blocks from the fire, and at this hose house, the watchman had seen the fire before the alarm was given from the courthouse, and the company were on their way to the fire before the box was struck. In consequence of this early sighting of the fire, the hose company, the America, went 11 blocks and attached their hose to the fire plug and got water on the fire before the engine did, although two engines were located considerably near the fire, It would require five minutes for the nearest engine to go to the fire, a distance of six blocks. From three to five minutes more would be required in which to unreel and lay out the hose, make the connection with the plug, and go to work. Intelligent citizens who live near the place of the fire testify that it was from 10 to 15 minutes from that time that they first saw the fire before any engine came upon the ground, and it is proved that the engines repaired to the fire after getting the alarm with the usual celerity. Okay. And again, we're using the the vocabulary yeah, that... The antiquated old school terms. Yeah, that, that this was written in. When they arrived, there were three to five buildings that were fiercely burning. The fire must have been burning from 10 to 15 minutes with the wind then blowing strongly from the southwest and carrying the fire from building to building in a neighborhood composed wholly of dry wooden buildings with wood shavings. Piled in every barn and under every house, the fire had gotten too great 
headway for the engines caught out by the first alarm to be able to subdue it. Fire Marshal Williams and 3rd Assistant Marshal Benner arrived um, on the ground soon after the engines, and Marshal Williams immediately ordered the second and soon afterward the third alarm to be turned in. But these only called the distant engines, and many valuable minutes elapsed before they could reach the fire and get to work. And before this could be accomplished, the strong wind had scattered the fire into many of the buildings is all as dry as tinder. I mean, it was, it, it was dry. And that spread over so large an area that the whole department, although working with their utmost energy, were soon unable to cut off or prevent the wind, which then by this time it would become a gale because of the fire that was burning. from And, you know, when you get fire, it, it creates drafts oh, and, yeah. and does stuff like that. So, yeah, so this is coming from the burning shingles and carrying this stuff over the heads and setting other buildings on fire far away from the main fire. After it got into the high church at the corner of Clinton and Mather Street and thence to the match factory and Bateman's planting mills and lumber, it was beyond control of the fire department. That was from the official report. Now, we mentioned the strong wind out of the southwest that had started the great conflagration toward the middle of the city in the central business district. Firefighters had hoped that the south branch of the Chicago River and an area that had previously thoroughly burned would act as a natural firebreak. All along the river, however, were lumber yards, warehouses, and coal yards, and barges and numerous bridges across the river. So as the fire grew, the wind intensified and became superheated, causing structures to catch fire from the heat and from burning debris blown by the wind. And by 11.30 p.m., the fire had ignited the waste and oil on the surface of the river. Around midnight, framing, flaming debris... <laughs> Not that easy, is it? I, yeah. Flaming debris blew across the river and landed on roofs at the south side gas works, which were made of tar pitch. When the gas works exploded, power was cut off to most of the city. Shortly after that, flames engulfed Conley's Patch, which was a poor Irish area of the city, so quickly that many residents were unable to escape. By 1.30 a.m., the supposedly fireproof courthouse began to burn. Authorities released prisoners held there as the courthouse bell that we mentioned earlier fell through the tower at about 2.30 as Mayor Roswell B. Mason was begging nearby cities and towns for help. Some witnesses reported hearing the sound of the bell crash from over a mile away. State Street Bridge, a major conduit to the thus far safe north side, began burning, cutting off a way out of the city. Many people drowned and were trampled as they tried to evacuate in a panic. By 3 a.m., the fire had reached the city cemetery at the south end, and at about 3.30 a.m. on Monday, October 9th, the Chicago Waterworks was ablaze. After the waterworks burned, there was little the firemen could do with their engines, except right on the banks of the river. They had lost 7,500 feet of hose and one steam fire engine. Two more engines had been in the repair shops and were partially destroyed, so that after 11 o'clock on Sunday night, there were only 14 engines in service, and after daybreak, only one half of the hose remained. There was little an engine could do unless it was right on the banks of the river where they could pump water from the river and spray it on the fire from where they were. And 
obviously this did little good. People gathered on the east side of town on the shores of Lake Michigan and watched the city burn. As the morning wore on, people found relief in the lake itself as lumber and coal yards along the water's edge went up in flames and the heat caused people's belongings to combust on the shore. On the south side, the fire had begun to die down and people went back to the rubble of their former homes to find out what was salvageable among the smoke and ruins. Sometime between 10 a.m. and noon, General Philip H. Sheridan ordered his troops to blow up the remaining buildings in the path of the fire along Michigan Avenue in an attempt to slow the blaze. For the remainder of the day, the fire continued to spread north, trapping residents and forcing them to flee further north as well, ahead of the flames that had destroyed all other means of escape. And finally, on the evening of Monday, October 9th, it began to rain. So I don't think we need to... I think we're putting in enough context right now, but think how significant this is. You've got the army downtown blowing up buildings mm-hmm. to stop the spread of this fire. So, I mean, this is, yeah, it, yeah, we can't it overstate was, that. It's no, significant. it was, it was awful. Yeah. The firemen and their officers were exhausted and they did all that they could do. They worked heroically to save the property of others. And while their own houses were burning and their family, their families were fleeing the flames, trying to get over to Lake Michigan. Yeah, and remember, too, that they were, you know, they didn't have the materials that they needed even to start out with. Yeah. And they were exhausted from already having fought 20 different fires that week. So they're running low on... Now the whole on, city's on fire. Yeah, they're running low on energy, low on men, like manpower, low on materials. It's, I can't even imagine. Yeah. They, along with many other citizens of Chicago, were forced together along the lakeshore and prairie, millionaires alongside shopkeepers, alongside the beggars of the street. More than 2,000 acres of land, 73 miles of road, 120 miles of sidewalk, 2,000 lampposts, 17,500 buildings, and 20, $222 million worth of property. Now that's $1,871. Today, that $222 million would cost over $5 billion and destroyed, just completely obliterated. Surprisingly, only 150 bodies were recovered, but it's believed that the death toll may have been as high as 300. Now, you mentioned the Army. On Wednesday the 11th, General, so um, the fire started Sunday night. It kind of died out the evening of Monday. On Wednesday, the 11th, General Philip Sheridan took control of the city and placed it under martial law for the next two weeks to prevent looting, rioting, and general public anarchy. Hmm. Ultimately, one in three residents was left homeless, and donations began to flood in from all over the country, including food, goods, and funds. Many despaired, and in rival cities, gleefully, they wrote Chicago off. But in its first post-fire issue on October 11th, the Tribune declared, cheer up, looking upon the ashes of 30 years accumulations, the people of this once beautiful city have resolved that Chicago shall rise again. And it did. Within a week, 6,000 temporary structures were erected. Tribune editor Joseph Medill was elected mayor in November as the fireproof candidate, and before resigning in mid-1873, he oversaw a variety of fire protection reforms, including a ban on wooden buildings in the business district. 
By this time, the Chicago stockyards were thriving, finding their beginnings in the mid-1860s. This meant railroads, which allowed Chicago to become a major player in the United States. The stockyards and the meat processing industry led to another famous Chicago story by a gentleman called Upton Sinclair, known as The Jungle. If you haven't read it, I strongly recommend it. Of course, the story of Chicago continues on with the gangsters and Al Capone and Elliot Ness. Now, that isn't all what Chicago was about. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that's kind of the history in a nutshell. I mean, yep. the fire. We always think of fire and gangsters. The jungle. That's kind of what I think of. gangsters yeah. and stuff like that. But that's not fair. Yeah. yeah. Today's Chicago, it's, it's having its issues, as many big cities are, are doing. But Chicago itself is a very beautiful city with its architecture. Mm-hmm. It's just it's a it's a beautiful city to be to be in and to look at. You you can go and you can stand on a bridge that crosses over the Chicago River at night and just look down the banks of the river at all the restaurants that line the riverbank with all the lights that are reflecting on the water, or just you know take a walk up the magnificent mile with all those stores and just all the stuff that's right there. Or, or, or go out on the Navy Pier, walk out the end of the Navy Pier, and then turn around and look at the skyline of Chicago. That's it's, my favorite place to go in Chicago is Navy Pier at night. It's it's beautiful. It, it's, a, it's a very, very beautiful city. And it's, it's long since recovered from the Great Fire. But the Chicago Fire is a part of its history, and it's become part of American history, and it should not be forgotten. Absolutely. So we hope you've learned a little bit about um, the great conflagration. <laughs> and uh, and like we said, check out some of the websites that we'll um, be letting you know about after the music plays. Um, if you want more, in, even more insight. Go check out the pictures. Yeah, definitely. And if you happen to be in the Chicago area, there is a museum dedicated to the Great Chicago Fire. I can't recommend it enough. I've never been there, but I will definitely plan on going the next time that we are in Chicago. And uh, I'll be in Chicago this Steve weekend. Steve will be in Chicago this weekend. So but if I, you are a Chicago listener and you happen to see him wandering around, say hi. He's pretty nice. Yeah, you probably won't see me. It's a big city now. <laughs> it is a yeah. big city. Yeah, just up up Friday evening, do my thing on Saturday, and got to get got to get to come back home on Sunday. If you are in Chicago and you listen to the show, you will make his lifetime if you see him out and about and you ask him for an autograph. Yeah. First off, no. The only picture anyone would have would be. eh, Never mind. It's it's not happening. No no one's going to see me, and I'm just not that famous. So, anything else about the Great Chicago Fire? I think that's it. Yeah, it's just. I can't imagine being, you know, standing on the shores of Lake Michigan, just watching the city burn and having to get into the lake because you're. You know, the things sitting on the beach are combusting, spontaneously combusting from the heat coming off of the fire. You know, just like I said, you know, stand out on Navy Pier and look back at the skyline. Could you imagine these people no. standing out in the lake and looking back on their skyline? I know it just makes watching my it heart burn. Hurt. It yeah. makes my heart hurt because that is my favorite, my favorite thing ever to do in Chicago is to go to Navy Pier at night. And just look at the city skyline. It's so pretty. And I just, it it makes me so sad to think yeah. of that. I mean, Chicago became such an important part oh, yeah. of of the United States because of 
of, of the stockyards and all the rail yeah and all the rail yards and if you drive through chicago and you drive up you'll still see all the rail lines and you'll Mm -hmm. see all this stuff out there i mean it's still i mean obviously it's now a a major financial hub for the united states Mm -hmm. but you know there's still all the industry that goes on in chicago that we depend on yep yeah a lot of the meat that we buy still comes from the stockyards in chicago did not know that. Did not know that. Anyway, there we go. The Great Chicago Fire. Yep. If you get a chance, go visit Chicago. It is a very, very beautiful city. And windy, so take your hat. And windy. If- I checked the weather. It's not going to be that cold this weekend. <laughs> Good for you. If you want to get a hold of us, the best way is to write to us at alosthour at gmail.com, or you can check us out on social media. We have all of the things, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um We would love to hear from you. That's it. Yeah. Anything else? That's all. All right. So from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources this week include weather.gov, Wikipedia, the Chicago Tribune, Chicago.gov, and the website that we mentioned several times, greatchicagofire.org. O'Leary legend, specifically. Well, that's one part of it. That's one part of it. (laughs) 